Well, good morning, church. Wow. I know, right? I know, Jake. Every week, there's a few more. There's a few more. It's like the fastest growing church in America, except I think we're not the only ones. But welcome back, guys. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 17 this morning, and we are talking about perhaps one of the best known, if not the best known, story in the Bible, David and Goliath. My son has been making it very clear for the last three weeks that he should be giving this sermon. Uh, He said, I want to give the sermon on David and Goliath. And so I ask him, you know, what is it about? And then he says it, and I'm like, no, you're wrong. See, that's that's what it takes. You just tell people, no, you're wrong. And he said, uh, and so we've been talking about what it's about, what it's about, what it's about. But when I asked him, why should you give the sermon? He's like, because I have got a lot to say. And uh, not just generally, just generally, he said, I've got a lot to say. I could easily fill the time. I was like, well, you may be, you may be onto something because, uh, you know, it helps to just have a lot to say. Um, this is, uh, if you've ever read um, Tom Sawyer, uh, there's a, a scene in Tom Sawyer where he's asked by, um, in Sunday school, uh, the name of the first two disciples, and he says, David and Goliath. And... Uh, that perfectly illustrates how well everyone knows these names and this story, even if they don't totally know it that well. There's so many reasons why it resonates with us, it sticks with us. Um, there's nothing like an underdog. Uh, there's nothing like identifying with being up against something that you cannot beat or defeat yourself. And I think it's because of the tremendous connection between what we see happen here with the Israelites and what we feel living out our daily lives as Christian and even those who are not Christian living in this world. We're going to read different parts of this. There's a lot of reading this morning because there's a lot of important text in this story. It is not a short, brief one. The author wants us to have a lot of detail and know exactly what it's like to experience what these people experience. So I'll put up on the screen the parts of it that we're going to read. Um, We're gonna start at verse one, and we'll read through, um, I believe, to verse uh, seven, and then we'll stop for a second. So 1 Samuel 17, verse one through seven. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes de Mamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his legs, uh, of his spear, was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. 
he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is such a vivid description. As I said, the author here wants us to know exactly how this felt and how intimidating this person, this Philistine, who's only named twice, the rest of the time is called the Philistine, this man Goliath exactly was. He was over nine feet tall. He was massive. Now let's try to keep this in perspective for a second. The real enemy here is not Goliath. It is the Philistines, because chances are the entire Israelite army could probably beat Goliath. But the Philistines, like so many of the enemies that the Israelites faced again and again, knew that uh, military might was not just about physical strength, but it was about psychology. It was about fear. And so just like how the Ammonites, chapters before, when, uh, when battling the Israelites, uh, decided not just to beat them, but said, fine, we'll make you a deal. If you all gouge out one of your eyes, we'll let you, uh, we'll let you live. Thus striking even greater fear into the hearts of the people as they had to go away and ask themselves, oh, what do we do? Do we really ultimately become a people who gouge out our eyes just to live? In the same way the Philistines know, they could beat the Israelites, they have more people, they're better armed, but they're also, in their minds, so confident that their people are better fighters, that they say, let's send out one man, this man, and say to the people just to torment them further so that every night for 40 days they'll wake, they'll go to sleep wondering what should we do, and every morning they'll wake up hoping and wishing that somebody would, would come and save them even though they knew it wasn't going to happen. That, that Saul would have to deal with this and be afraid day in and day out. The Philistines knew exactly what they were doing. They had more people, they had more strength, they had better weapons. You'd have to be crazy to go out and fight this giant named Goliath. But that also might be the only way to save the Israelites. The Philistines send this man out, and it says in the end here, when Saul and all the Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This word dismayed means shattered. To be dismayed is to actually be shattered, sort of spread out. And what that means is these people were greatly afraid, but their very courage, their very self, them as a people, were shattered. And you can't unshatter something. That their courage and their ability to have confidence that they were going to win or do something was completely shattered by the words of this man and how terrifying he was. 
To be an Israelite means to live amidst constant threat. We talked about this so much in 1 Samuel. There's always an enemy waiting to come in. There's always somebody waiting to fight them. In some ways, this is sort of like a bad action movie, the way it plays out in 1 Samuel, in that you're not even getting backstories half the time. You're going, wait, so what is this and who are these people? They're just bringing in people, big armies, so that we could see big battles happen? What's the deal? Why are there so many people all the time? And because the Israelites displaced people coming into the promised land, but also then, because of the time in which they live, are constantly being attacked by greater forces with better weapons who hate them and want to take back the land that the Israelites pushed them out of, there's always someone ready to kill them. There's always an army ready to defeat them, and they are always in the position of knowing we just won't be able to beat these people or win. This illustrates perfectly what it is to be one of the people of God. No matter how much we want to believe that to be one of God's people means that the things that cause fear, the things that cause terror, the things that bring death and bring pain, that those things go away when you become the people of God. It seems to be the opposite. It seems to be that being the people of God means you will still have all those things around you. In fact, it seems as often as though being the people of God increases the number of enemies and threats and hurdles and increases oftentimes the suffering that you face. The starting point in this story is fear. It is terror. You cannot escape the things that cause fear. The Israelites could not escape the things that caused them fear. There was always going to be another army, another enemy, another person coming to remind them yet again, your children may not wake up tomorrow. Your promised land, your home may not be your home tomorrow. This is true of us. That as much as we want to believe that there's some way that we can choose to do a thing in life, that we can end up in a position where we will not have these things around us that make us afraid, that cause us fear, that are threats to our life and our blessing and our well-being and those that we care for and all that we hold dear, the truth is you can't escape those things. This is not the beginning of an action movie. This is the beginning of a horror movie. This is the beginning of a movie that you don't want to watch. Okay, this is the beginning of Schindler's List. This is watching people being marched to the gas chambers. This is a one-sided thing. No one wants to watch that. No one wanted to watch The Passion of the Christ even a second time. Everyone went and saw it the first time. A bunch of people bought it. No one says, hey, what should we watch tonight? Let's watch The Passion of the Christ. Because we don't want to watch that again. We don't want to endure that kind of one-sided torture that happened to Christ. That is the beginning. This is what we're seeing the beginning of here. And for the Israelites, this is nothing new. It's just another person coming to them, reminding them that they aren't big enough, they aren't strong enough, and they're going to lose the battle and they're going to lose the fight. Following God doesn't remove the danger, the threats, all those things from your life. In fact, in many cases, it seems like following God only increases them. There are so many things 
that give us fear, that cause us fear. And those who, I, in my conversations with people who, who say that there aren't things that cause them fear are people who have so resigned themselves to those things. Sort of resigned defeat. But that's the only reason why nothing shows up on the radar. There are many of us who have fear about getting sick, who have fear about dying and not being there for our loved ones or our families. There are those of us who, are fear, who have fear about the people in our life getting sick and dying and not being there with us and for us. There are those of us who fear going too soon, and there are those of us who fear going after our time, it seems, has come. There are those who, I'll never forget waking up the morning of September 11th in 2001, having gone to bed the night before feeling safe and waking up that morning and collectively everyone feeling vulnerable, feeling as though somehow, wait, aren't we on some kind of an island? Shouldn't we be safe from this kind of thing? And then collectively seeing what we went through as a nation when we felt so vulnerable. Right? The things that we needed to figure out, the things that we needed to do to ensure, because that is the most important thing, is to ensure that the things that we are afraid of, that we can get them away, that we can get away from them, that we can protect and save ourselves from those things because there's nothing worse than living in that place. And realizing half the time we can't do enough, but still filling our, our time and our lives with so much that we try to do to have that sense of security and safety. We're afraid of running out of money. We're afraid of not being able to actually have the things that just are the only things that we feel like we want in life. Whether it's a person, whether it's a family, to see the kind of, of fear, to experience personally the kind of fear that, that I did at the time in my life when all I wanted was a family and it seemed to be the one thing that I could not have. The fear that I experienced in that time. Fear that I would live the rest of my life without joy. We can't get away from the things that make us afraid. And the Israelites couldn't either. To be a people of God meant learning how to follow God in the midst of those things. It didn't seem to be that you could get away from them. Because apart from not being able to escape the things you can't fear, sorry, here's the other downer, you also won't defeat the things that cause you fear. You can't ultimately defeat them. There are so many things. Uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings about the Bible is that you can read it and that the Bible will give you ways to defeat the things that are in your life. That somehow by following these rules, by living this way, by disciplining yourself this much, by trusting enough that you'll begin to defeat the very things that are your enemies and are trying to destroy you. The Bible does not say that though. There are plenty of other things in the world that do say that. There are plenty of things in the world, books you can buy that will say, if you do this thing, you won't have to be afraid that the money will run out. If you do this thing, you won't have to be afraid of how your kids will turn out. If you do this thing, you won't have to be afraid of how your 
marriage will work out. If you act this way and do these things, you won't have to be afraid about what happens with your job. If you live this way and take these measures, you won't have to be afraid or worry about your health and how long you'll live. There are lots of things that say to us, if you do this, you will defeat the thing that you're afraid of, the thing that causes you fear. But the Bible says, apart from not not saying it's one of those things, the Bible says that's not going to work. You won't be able to defeat them because more will pop up. In that sense, it all seems like smoke and mirrors. And so, what happens then is David comes on the scene. David is back after being called into Saul's service. It says that he goes back and forth between his father, between tending the sheep still in his father's household and being uh, this musician for Saul who soothes him and is one of his armor bearers. But his father says to him, your brothers have gone off to fight this battle. I want you to go and take some food, some things to them and to the, bat- to the other people fighting the battle. And I want you to send them my best wishes. And so David goes and he finds himself there in the Valley of Elah where this battle is taking place. And it says that every day Goliath would come out and he would say the same things. And one day David happens to be there. And Goliath says these things and David is inquiring about what exactly is going on here and why exactly everyone is putting up with this. His brothers get mad at him and are like, what are you doing here? Everybody's confused. And ultimately, this is what happens. We read this a little bit further down. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered to him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Then in verse 32, as David begins talking with Saul, Saul asks him the natural question. Why on earth do you think you're the one who's going to defeat Goliath? And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from his flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So here comes David, 
And what is it about David that is so special? Yeah, God's anointed him as king, but I don't think people really know that. What is it that makes David so special that he's able to apparently fight and defeat Goliath? It's not his wit, the fact that he's so intelligent and, and sharp and smart that he can out, uh, outsmart him and that he can defeat him, which would be great in a movie and it would be exactly what would happen. It's not because David is pure of heart as a man after God's own heart and, uh, and because of his pure, young, handsome, ruddy, right? It's there. We, all, we talked about that last week, right? He is a redhead and that could be part of it. We're not going to count that out. But the text doesn't really specify and make that clear. So it's not that either. It's not the fact that, uh, that David has some, any of those special skills or abilities. It's not because he's good enough and he's obedient enough that he knows that God's going to reward him by doing whatever he wants. It's not his skill with a sling, is, is it? Maybe it's the fact that he sat out there in the field all day, day after day, right? Boy, if you want a good story to teach your kids about how persistence can work out and, 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 and reward you, right? This kid, David, he sat out there all day, worked on the sling, worked on the sling. He got so good, they made a, they made a Marvel series about him, right? They, he was the next superhero, right? He's the guy who could literally pick up anything, a bottle cap, and he could throw it and hit anything and kill them. It'll sink in their head. It's amazing. There's going to be a whole show about it, right? That's not why. The reason that David goes up against Goliath, the reason that he can step out and say, I will defeat this man, is because David can see. It is what David can see, and what he can see that nobody else can see is the real fight that's happening. And it isn't the one that everyone is looking at. Because David talks about angels, armies of angels. He talks about God fighting. There's something David says here when he tells this incredible story about him defeating a lion or a and a bear and, and, and going after these, them and saying, like, I went after them because they were going after my sheep. There's one thing that he says at the end of it that is completely different than what any of us would ever say if this actually happened to us and we had a practice of doing this out in the fields. He says, at the end of it, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Can you go back one slide, Steve? He says, the Lord who delivered me from these things. Anyone else would tell the story of defeating a bear, defeating a lion while out tending this flock and would say, because I did that. David says, the Lord did that. David is able to see God working, even in his own life, this young shepherd boy. And it gives him confidence to know that God can do even more than that. This is a crazy way of seeing God for the Israelites because the sense that you get from the Israelites when they talk about God and the way they see God is that he's so big that he's a God of a nation. He's not a God of a person. And so for David to, to, to be thinking when I was out there in the field that day and that thing was happening, God was with me. God was doing that thing. God cared enough 
to actually be a part of what was going on in my life. That, that's not the way that people talk. But because David knew, because he could see something that other people didn't seem to be able to see. It was because of what David could see that all these things in the past that had happened to him in his own life tell him that he can trust God will deliver his people moving forward. You go on and read, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine. Oh, this is the part we read. Thanks, Steve. I'm all messed up here. Sorry, guys. Then David said to the Philistine. So, so David gets his armor. They equip him with a bunch of armor. And it's all too heavy. And he's like, I can't fight in this stuff. Besides, what's this going to do anyway, right? And he reaches down. I mean... In, a, in, a, in, a, in such, a vivid, such a vivid way in our minds. He reaches down, he grabs a couple of rocks, and he puts them in a little sack. And he goes out there with nothing but his sling. And as Goliath watches this young boy come out, he taunts him, he teases him. He says, am I but a dog that you throw sticks to me instead of sending an actual warrior out to fight me? Is this some kind of a joke? And he takes it as an insult. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and a spear, but for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David doesn't just see something that the people don't see, which is that God is the one fighting. God is the one doing things, not us. What he sees is, uh, what he knows is that God is bigger. That my God is bigger than this guy and anything else out there. You see, while we are forced to live in the midst of the things that give us terror and give us fear, and they will be there as long as we live in this life, in this flesh, on this earth, we live in the midst of those things knowing that God is bigger than those things. We may not be bigger than those things, but that God is bigger than those things. You might be able to go a couple of years thinking that you're bigger than the things that you're afraid of. But eventually life's going to teach you that that's not true, that you can't really stop them, you can't really control them, you can't really do what you want and get away unscathed. David knows that God is bigger. He says this to this Philistine, and because God is bigger, it doesn't matter how small David is, God's going to defeat this man. What David also knows, apart from the fact just that God is bigger, is that we are his. He is our God. You see, the things that David knows are not rocket science. It's almost as though everyone else has forgotten them. But that's what fear does. They march out the Philistine giant, and as soon as he comes out and begins taunting the people of God, the things that they knew to be true, the things God did in the past, the amazing, incredible things that God did to bring them where they are now, start to slip out of their minds. 
and the fear takes over. They start to forget that God is bigger. They start to forget that they are his people. And David is the one who sees, and David is the one who isn't afraid because he knows God is bigger than this thing, and we are his. Sometimes the hardest thing to believe when you are afraid is that God is actually bigger than that thing. Sometimes the hardest thing to believe when you're afraid is that God actually loves you. You've been through enough life, you've seen enough things, you've been hurt enough. It's actually pretty hard to believe that God loves you. David knows this is true. David knows that God loves his people. David heard the accounts that were passed down from generation to generation. The children of Israel knew the things that God did through Pharaoh. He knew the things that God did bringing his people through the desert. He knew the things that God did bringing down the walls of Jericho. He knew those things that God did. Not the people themselves, not the leaders that God was using, but God himself. And because David knows this, he has nothing to be afraid of. He sees the threat, and instead of diminishing it, he simply says, God can handle that. And before we go on and get to the best part of the story, I want you to know today that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from this. God still is bigger, and you are still his. If you are his child, if you trust in Jesus, you are still his. And even though the things that you've been through may cause you to want to feel over and over again, to question those things, what I have to tell you is that this hasn't changed, even if it feels like it has. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. God wins. Surprise, surprise. Effortlessly, David kills Goliath. But he he doesn't do it because of his wit. He doesn't do it because of his purity. He doesn't do it because of his quick thinking or because of his amazing skills with a sling. And yet God uses him to do it. He does it because God will always win. Because God is bigger and because these are his people. The Philistines turn and they fled. 
what makes David great, as my son and I have been talking you know, week after week about, what is David and Goliath about? What is David and Goliath about? What is David and Goliath about? We come back again, I tell him kind of the same thing each time. And yet he actually kind of seems to forget it each time. And we go back to it. There's like a new thing it's about. No, it's about this thing. What made David great? We all want to read the Bible and see people like David and say, how am I, how can I be like David? How can I be like the hero of the story? What makes David great is that he knows he's not the hero of the story. What makes David great is that he knows that God's going to win. And then he strides right into the battle. He goes, listen, guys, there's always going to be scary stuff around us. Stop forgetting the things that God's done. Let's trust him enough to know that he can defeat the enemy that is in front of us, that is before us. And that's why God wins. That's why David wins. What David did was trust. He trusted in what God could do, and that was what gave him the strength that he needed. His courage was in God alone. It was not in anything that he could do. David begins to cause us to think a lot more about this guy named Jesus who shows up in the New Testament. We know that Jesus comes from the line of David, but the things that David does begin to make us think more and more about Jesus himself. The truth of the matter is that if you want to be like David, it's very, very simple. Trust Jesus. Know that the things will be around you. I talk to people who are going to such extreme measures to combat and try to defeat the things that they think are in the way of the life they're supposed to be living. I talk to people who move away from all the things, thinking that will get me to a place where I will have no more enemies, I will have nothing else against me. You can't do that. They'll always be there, and you'll never be strong enough to defeat those things. Anything that promises you that you can control that stuff in your life is lying to you, and it's making money lying to you, probably. Sadly, there are people that use the Bible for the same purpose. But to be like David is to know that the answer is to trust in what God can do. Why? Because of what God has done. And how do you do that? Is you look back in your life and instead of saying, I defeat, look at what I did, look at how I defeated that thing, look at what got me to where I am today, you say, God did this and God did this and God got me where I am today. So even though the fear is there and it's so big that I'm starting to forget, I'm going to trust See, when the Bible talks about trusting in Jesus, it talks about putting our faith in him and that because we cannot accomplish righteousness ourselves, that it has to be trusting in something like Jesus, someone like Jesus in order for us to be saved. But you see, the thing that saves us is not how much we trust in Jesus. The thing that saves us is not how strong our faith is. What saves you is not, not the strength of your personal faith. It is the object of your faith. If, you, if you're on a hike and you start to fall down a, a cliff and you grab onto a branch, what is saving you is how strong that branch is, not how strong you are and not how good you are at holding on. 
And if that branch isn't strong, you will not be saved. Because of how strong Jesus is, because of the might that God has, we know that to truly live out our lives the way the Bible says we are meant to, the answer is to say, when the fear is there, I cannot control this thing, and I probably can't defeat this thing. It doesn't mean I'm supposed to give up. It means I am supposed to trust Jesus and know that God is bigger than this thing. This is what David knew, and it wasn't because he was a genius. It was because everyone else around him forgot it. That is why the story of David and Goliath is so incredible. It is not about how great David is. It is about, number one, how everyone else in Israel could just keep on forgetting the things that God had done. And the first person that showed up, the smallest, youngest, most inexperienced person who showed up, but knew because they could see what was really happening, was the person who could come out on top. There's a lot of people who have a lot of reason to feel fear right now. When Jesus tells us not to fear, not to be anxious, it's not because there aren't things that are scary out there, and it doesn't because Jesus promises that all that stuff's going to go away if you choose to follow him. You know, one of the things that's the hardest thing to, uh, to deal with in life is this thing that a Christian is supposed to be, which is a sojourner. The, 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 Peter calls us sojourners. He said we're basically a people who are wandering through a land that is not our home. Does it ever feel that way? I feel that oftentimes. That we are called to wander this land that is not ultimately our home. And do you have any idea how unsettling and frustrating and, and scary that can be? We do. So to follow Jesus isn't to say, now it's going to get easier and all those things are going to go away. In fact, it can get harder because instead of putting up walls around ourselves and going, if I can protect myself from this and keep that out and push that away and control this and do this, he says, guess what? I'm calling you now to go out to tell other people about the fact that I am enough and that I am the only one who will save them in the same way that David did with his people. That's a hard thing to do. That's a scary thing to do. And we can't possibly do it if we think that we have to defeat and control and defeat these things ourselves. We love the story of David and Goliath. We love it. I love it. We love it because it is a reminder to us of how big our God is and how ridiculous it is when anything else stands up in our lives and said, says, I can defeat you. I can conquer you. You have no hope. Just give up. Jesus says, I defeated death. I conquered the very worst, the very hardest, the very scariest. Trust in me and you will have life. Let's pray. Father, we know what it is to be afraid. We know what it is to have things in our lives that just absolutely terrify us. 
And it's clear that the author of 1 Samuel wants us to know just how much it felt that way on that day or on those days. God, would you give us the eyes to see what David could see? Give us the eyes to see that when we look back at our lives before now. Give us the ability to see how you are the one who has been at work, not us. And let that be the thing that gives us faith, that reminds us that no matter what we face, no matter how difficult it is to wrap our minds around, no matter how much it feels like it's going to defeat us, as we see with these eyes, let us know that you are bigger and that we are yours, God. Father, if there's anybody here today who has not chosen to follow Christ, who has not chosen to become your child, God, then they may be able to believe that you are bigger, but they cannot believe that you are for them because you are for your children, and your children have to trust in you, God. And so if there's anyone here today who, who is here and maybe understands about you, God, who understands a little bit about the Bible, who's familiar with church, who's familiar with David and Goliath, who's familiar with these things we're talking about, but has never actually taken that step of saying, I trust in Jesus to save me. Not in the good things I can do, not in the family that I come from, not in the group of people that I'm a part of, not even attending a church enough. Then Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts, that you would make it clear that that is the only thing that they can do to respond right now, God. As we worship this morning, as we sing about the power that fear can have and the power that you have to overcome it, God, would you give us an overwhelming sense of freedom and joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.